It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim. Environmentalist Michael Schellenberger making the case for nuclear power. This is a source of energy that produces zero air and water pollution, and I mean zero. If you were to try to produce the power that comes out of Diablo Canyon from solar, you have to cover, completely cover an area three times the size of San Francisco. The main event is actually being able to not use natural resources so that you can have wildlife, you can have wild animals return. Our show is about fixes. Not the same old left versus right. I am right, right. and you are wrong. Yeah, something new. How to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? So, Richard, you know, I've been an environmentalist since I was 13 years old, and I still remember the very first Earth Day. But through so much of that time, there's been this strong sense in the environmental movement that the only way to save the planet is for all of us to get by with less. So we have a guest today just days before Earth Day, as we're putting this show out, who argues that we can set aside more for nature, but also grow more economically around the world. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Michael Schellenberger is joining us, co-author of the book Breakthrough, also recently started a new group called environmentalprogress.org, and his latest project project is the Eco-Modernist Manifesto, a joint statement from a group of thinkers. Michael's joining us via Skype from Berkeley, California. Thanks, Michael. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. So right off the top, what is eco-modernism? Well, what we set out to do was to construct a view of the environment and humans that was grounded in science and grounded in what we know about not just how humans destroy nature, but also the ways in which we save it. And so that sounds weird, right? Because people only talk about how humans are terrible for the environment. So I'm intrigued by this. You're saying that, and I think a lot of us feel that human beings were having a huge impact on the climate. Are we the dominant species? Are we completely changing planet Earth? I don't think there's any doubt about it. I mean, on this issue, I agree with Um, most environmentalists, most conservationists, I mean, humans are having a huge impact. Um, And a lot of it has been negative for what we call the natural world. I mean, just the the number of wild animals on Earth has declined by half since 1961. Many of the big ecosystems, we've had a big hand in changing, including the climate system. Where I, I part company with my my fellow environmentalists on most questions, um, 
uh, is around um, the nature of that impact and and how you reduce it. A lot of what environmentalists and even and conservationists have proposed over the last fifty years is wrong, and in some cases, the opposite is the case. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. I I remember the eighties when it, there was a broad movement against nuclear power plants. And there were a lot of protests at the Diablo Canyon plant in California. I remember Jackson Brown performed and there were thousands of protesters. Well, finally, now it looks like that plant might be getting close to being shut down. And you think that's a really bad idea. Why? Well, I mean, to understand why nuclear is so important, I think you have to have a broader view of how humans change the environment, how we use nature. So if you start at kind of the most basic level, we all start off using wood and dung um, as our primary source of energy. So people sometimes imagine that it's just one long um, decline, that humans lived in some sort of you know more harmonious state with the environment. But the truth is when you rely on wood and dung, you are having really negative impacts on your local forests um, and you're also having really ne- negative impacts on your wildlife. Yeah, so, people forget that England was completely deforested before the coal revolution. Yeah, and much of New England was also deforested. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, actually, in, in New England, it was only 30% forest in 1880. Today, it's 80%. The big change is just that we are growing a lot more food on a lot less land. And so that deforested area in the 1880s was because we were using all that land for for farmland. And so what's happened in the United States and in Europe is as we've moved away from wood as fuel and as we've become more productive at growing food, um, twice as productive just in the last uh, 50 years, we've been able to return much of our continents to forests and wildlife are coming back. So it's not just one great big decline. Absolutely. I mean, I think on the question of forests and wildlife, there's no question that moving to modern energy, which in most cases is fossil fuels, um, there's the renewables and biomass stage, then you go to fossil fuels, and then ultimately you go to nuclear. In that early stage of where you're using biomass, where you're using wood, um, you're also basically starting to exterminate your wild animal populations. Well, and those, my- wild animal, those wild animal populations can only come back when people move to cities. Michael, critics of, of nuclear power are going to say – that we should be relying much more on wind, on solar, on renewables instead of nuclear power. As you look at dealing with carbon emissions, you have to have a scalable form of making energy 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because that's what cities need. That's what modern life requires. There's only one source of of 100% zero carbon energy that can fulfill that, and it's nuclear. Most of our rivers are dammed up. There's not a lot more to do with hydro. Uh, solar and wind, they run about 20% of the time, uh, often when providing power when you don't need it, like at night or um, in off-peak hours. And so what nuclear gets you is it gets you a reliable source of baseload power that can scale up basically infinitely. I mean, there's more, there's no shortage of uranium, and you can even – there's about 95% of the energy is left in the stuff after it comes out as so-called waste. So, so why are so many environmentalists – just viscerally opposed to nuclear power. It's basically an anti-growth kind of a Malthusian orientation. It's that, it's that, a that's few Thomas Malthus, the uh, British writer, who I think said that uh, we face extinction with more population because we can't possibly produce more food. 
That's right. I mean, and so in some ways what was happening with conservationists in the Sierra Club in the mid-60s is that they were taking a version of that. It wasn't exactly that Californians were going to run out of food, but just that too many people was going to mess up the beautiful scenery. I mean, that was the core motivation against Diablo Canyon, the nuclear plant. Um, That particular plant is heavily symbolic because it's the moment at which the conservation movement, which actually is pretty pro-nuclear at that point, Ansel Adams was in favor of nuclear. The chair of the Sierra Club Board of Directors was pro-nuclear. The Sierra Club voted for Diablo Canyon. A majority of its members voted to support Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant. Because for one thing, Um, they were so against having more dams. So nuclear power seemed like a um, like a promising alternative. I mean, at the time, people were like, this is a wait, this is a source of energy that produces zero air and water pollution. And I mean zero. There's no pollution that comes out of nuclear plants. And what there is in terms of waste is this incredibly small amount of highly concentrated waste. You get a huge amount of power, power for 3 million Californians on an area of land the size of three football fields. So the impact on the natural environment is incredibly small, far smaller than any other source of energy. Um, And If you were to try to produce the power that comes out of Diablo Canyon from solar, you have to cover, you have to cover, completely cover an area three times the size of San Francisco. You know, so solar is over 100 times, requires over 100 times more land and wind requires over 700 times more land. So the irony of all this is that in the name of kind of stopping people from coming to California, they didn't want all this cheap power. They didn't want development anywhere. You actually end up seeing the club and conservationists end up embracing a much more environmentally intensive form of energy, namely solar and wind. Now, I know that nuclear is part of the eco-modernist manifesto, but what are some of the other bits of thinking that go into this? The the picture you have with eco-modernism and basically this kind of story of environmental progress is humans doing more with less. You know, pollution in cities gets worse, but then it gets better. Um, you know, people do have more kids with modern medicine, but then they have fewer kids. Um, you know, conventional pollutants peak and decline. The amount of land we use for farming peaks and declines. So what eco-modernism does is it actually says, look, there's actually huge amounts of empirical evidence painting a picture of peaking human impact and decline. And, you know, and here's the one that really blows people's minds, of course. It involves a lot of industrialization. So you have to have – to have cities, you have to have factories. You have to absorb your peasant population that's using wood and dung into some job in the cities. I was in China in December with NASA climate scientist Jim Hansen. I was in India just now with sort of a, a, an energy and environmental conference there. And the contrast is striking. When you have factories, you can absorb your population and you can decouple from nature. Um, and then the final stage, obviously, is when you go to post-industrial societies like our own where you much of our manufacturing we don't do anymore much of our infrastructure is built now here's the twist though is that what we really need to be doing is transitioning to nuclear and because of all of this irrationality all of the ideologies all of the fears we're actually doing the opposite so you feel like to some extent we're being held back by some of the romantic, and you mentioned uh, Malthus, the Malthusian view of um, of environmentalism. I was part of this growing up. I mean, I read Paul Ehrlich's, you know, The Population Bomb, and I read Barry Commoner, and, and was very much influenced by that kind of thinking that 
we were going to run out all these resources, and the only solution is to use ra- less, right? is to rapidly slow down our economy. And but I also bought into the sort of life was better when everybody lived in touch with nature, like Indians and hunter gatherers. Yeah, I mean, definitely the romanticism is huge, right? So on the one hand, you should want to grow more food on less land, and yet actually what. You see people wanting to do is to actually move to less intensive forms of agriculture, you know, more small, small scale farms. And and so the Malthusians would basically say we just have to use less energy. And if we use less energy, then the human impact will be less. That turned out to be exactly the opposite. The more energy people end up consuming, the fewer kids they have, the more likely they are to live in cities. So, yeah, I mean, I think that one of the challenges for us is. How do you make a romantic vision? Because in some ways, for us, we're all still romantic. We all still want the wildlife and we want the green areas. And we just are pointing out that you can't have that with everybody trying to go back to being subsistence farmers and and using renewable energy. And so that's where your idea of decoupling comes in. Yeah, the goal should be to not use nature. So, you know, it's funny. It's like this whole sustainability discourse is such a so emblematic of the confusion we don't save nature by using it more sustainably. We didn't save the whales by using the whales sustainably. We <laughs> save the whales by not using the whales for oil and having better substitutes from whales. And so the main event is actually being able to not use natural resources so that you can have wildlife, you can have wild animals return, and in places where you don't have energy. You know, I spent a month in Central Africa, some pretty rough parts of the Congo, around the park where there's Gorilla, you know, many guerrilla groups, uh, you know, um, trying to fight the government and there's, you know, horrible civil war and people are struggling for survival. Well, that's where you have big wildlife losses. And so if you want to save the mountain gorillas, the elephants, the tigers, and if you want to save the whales, then you have to understand that we need to be living in cities. We need to be growing more food on less land and we ultimately need to move to nuclear. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Michael, we like to think that what's different about our show is that we're a solutions podcast. But let's talk about food and getting more from less. This is just another great story about energy and technology. So higher energy inputs into agriculture are the key. So fertilizer, if you just take nitrogen fertilizer, that's basically just energy. Um, You take natural gas and you turn it into fertilizer which means that you can actually let other farms that are not productive go back to grasslands and forests. But hasn't the the use of fertilizers, though, led to uh, negative environmental impacts? Well, here again, it's a peak. 
So yeah, you see nitrogen fertilizer going up. You see you see um, pollution impacts, but you also are starting to see a peaking and declining of that. So in rich countries, again, over the last ten years, uh, in the United States and Europe. Our use of nitrogen fertilizer has peaked and is now declining. So you're saying that we all have this wonderful romantic image of the small family farm. and But in fact, industrial agriculture allows us to grow a lot more food per acre. The acres you don't grow food on revert to forest. So that's a net. That's a good, even though some of the farming may have some environmental impacts with pesticides and, and nitrogen. But with better technology, that gets those impacts can be controlled better. And uh, and ultimately, you know, we might even move to types of agriculture that seem even more industrial, like indoor farming. But in fact, it might be the best thing for the planet. You know, it's fine to feel some nostalgia for the farm. I mean, my mom grew up on a farm. I went back as a kid sometimes. Um, But let's be clear that hardly any of us want to actually go back and work on farms. Um, And and by the same token, when in a lot of the world. Where we think it's tragic when indigenous people or, or, or rural people leave their villages and head into the cities to work. And we kind of arrogantly assume that that's a bad choice. But in fact, maybe a lot of those people are making a rational choice to, um, to, to move to a higher standard of living, even though they're leaving one that we nostalgically think of as being very beautiful. Oh, gosh, I know. Well, that's sort of the worst. I mean, that's sort of the, in some ways it's the dark side of environmentalism. I mean, I was I was very romantic kid. I was against um, I helped to lead these Nike factory protests um, and I'm still in some ways support those. But I went back and I wanted to interview some of the factory workers, young women. They came they they wanted to get out of their village. They wanted to come to the city. They wanted to have their own income. I mean, I profiled one you know, Indonesian factory worker, we have these horror stories. But, you know, even after she quit a job that was pretty bad in one of the factories, she still didn't want to go back home. She wanted to get another job in the city. So and I interview a lot of folks and very rarely do I find farmers who are like poor farmers who are like, yeah, I want my kids to be farmers. Most of them want their kids to go to school, get an education and get better jobs. Michael, I want to throw one of Jim's favorite phrases at you, which he's uttered a number of times on our podcast. Oh, here it comes. Which is, we romanticize the past and we catastrophize the present. Uh, I've got that right, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, so it seems to me that's one of the major solutions. Yeah, I mean, how can you look at this this incredible standard of living that everybody in rich countries enjoys and and then understand anything about the past and imagine that it was somehow much better back then. I just don't understand it. And then I think the thing that really matters is helping people to see nuclear power for what it is and stop projecting all of the craziness that they project onto it. Um, This is a technology where the basic facts about it are incredibly well understood by everybody. It's the safest way to make energy. It's the only scalable zero carbon power that can deal with climate change. So if those are things that we care about, then we're going to need to do a lot of nuclear power. And we're going to have to just talk back to the kind of really crazy anti-nuclear discourse and and story that's out there that is really about as credible as the anti-vaxxers. Before we go, one provocation, Chernobyl, it did lead to a huge environmental disaster in the region around Chernobyl. Understanding what happened at Chernobyl was part of the reason I changed my mind on nuclear. I, the Great. more you learn about the accidents, the more comfortable you feel you feel with the technology and the more concerned you are about the irrational reaction to them. So look at Chernobyl. This is a plant that had no containment dome. 
I mean, it, it's sort of preposterous when you think about it. they're running a nuclear plant without any containment dome to, to in case of a meltdown or accident. There was a fire spewing radiation out of the plant that had to be put out. When um, at the time, twenty nine firefighters died from acute radiation syndrome. Uh, I think we asked, I think the WHO, the World Health Organization, estimates another twenty died. So something like fifty firefighters died on the spot, and all deaths after that have to be extrapolated based on incredibly low levels of radiation. So you have you have a bunch of kids that get thyroid cancer, of which there's a one percent mortality rate. All of those thyroid cancers could have been prevented if the Russians had or the Soviets had done what the Japanese did on Fukushima. You have basic guesses of potentially new cancers, like in the thousands, in in societies where millions of people get cancer. I mean, it's actually a great case because it's like this is the worst that can happen. And you don't get significant mortality. Um, And and there thousands of deaths. There's the WHO estimates that you will have several thousands more additional deaths, and it's based not on actually being able to measure any deaths. It's based, it's based on using some estimate of additional radiation exposure leading to cancers leading to deaths. And how many, how many deaths uh, from, from respiratory disease from coal-fired power plants in that region have occurred during that same period, do you think? I mean, World Health Organization estimates 4 million people every year die from air, energy-related air pollution. So, I mean, that gives you a sense of it. Michael Schellenberger, thanks for joining us. Uh, and if you want to learn more about uh, Michael's group, it's environmentalprogress.org and also the Eco-Modernist Manifesto. So um, really great to have you on. Maybe we can do it again uh, sometime and dig a little bit deeper. Okay, sounds great, guys. All right, thank you, Michael. Take care. Okay, Okay. bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's roll. So, Jim, much of the conversation was about nuclear power, and I think that environmentalists have a responsibility to look at the priorities. What are we most worried about? Are we most worried about climate change? Are we most worried about uh, lung cancer deaths um, and asthma and other health impacts of fossil fuels? Are those more important? We need to have energy in some form. Well, so what's so interesting about Michael's point, I mean, there's a lot of layers to his argument. Um, The nuclear argument is a very pragmatic, empirical question. Um, But under... but I think understanding the opposition to nuclear power and to some extent understanding some of the the unpragmatic sides of the environmental movement is this nostalgic yearning for a uh, less civilized lifestyle. We all feel that. I mean, it's written right into the Bible, for Christ's sake. You know, this idea that there was a that there was a natural you know, idyllic, Edenic time, and that civilization corrupts it. Um, you know, we all see that. And it's slightly true. I mean, there's there's truth to it. But I love his point about the U-shaped curve. A lot of things that get bad, a lot of things get bad for a while. And then through technology and, um, and the, and, and, and the growth of economies, then they get better. So I think that the, um, and, all along that, those curves, I think we need to look. We need to look at what are the facts. It's so easy to to cave into the 
the the fear of nuclear power. I don't think it's irrational, but because it isn't irrational because you know because I mean, we, we, we have obviously serious you know, uranium's dangerous problems. stuff. Yes. No question about it. The waste is dangerous stuff. There are real risks here. But but what people fail to do is then say, okay, well, what is the record? What are the facts? What's happened in the accidents we've already had? Turns out none of them have been anywhere near as bad as we thought, and those accidents are as bad as you can imagine. And I think the other thing we need to do is balance risk. We can't get to a world which is risk-free. At the same time, I, I don't think we should discount um, – uh, you know, I don't think we should discount solar and wind. And and in fact, if you read the Eco-Modernism Manifesto, they acknowledge that photovoltaic in particular does keep getting better. You know, when the day comes that that nobody thinks twice about covering every building's roof with solar panels, that's not going to solve the problem single-handedly, but that'll make a big dent. Yeah, well, there's one quarrel I have with Michael, though, and that is I don't think he st- stresses conservation as much as right. he should do. And I think that technology has a huge role to play in in reducing our demand for energy without reducing our living standards. For right. instance, buildings, one example of incredibly inefficient buildings around the world, that uh, if they were made more energy efficient, we could reduce our demand for energy and our need for nuclear power and for other forms of energy. And that, and that isn't a matter of, uh, let's just slow down our economies and, and live virtuous no. lives consuming less. And Because I do think that there's been a little bit too much talk about nuclear power as the only answer and it isn't it's one of a whole range of answers right right and i think that that we we are the nice thing is we're seeing these things developing but we can't indulge in the fantasy that right we can turn off all of our nuclear power plants tomorrow and you know a a billion solar panels going to spring up to yeah. replace it to be fair to the environmental movement because it's often painted with one color with one brush environmental defense fund and we had uh, gernot wagner on our show uh, talking about the need for action on climate change the environmental defense fund is is a large organization and they say that nuclear power is part of well, the of the answer right so the environmental movement is split now you have a lot of people who indulge the emotional side then you and then you have pragmatists like eco-modernism the environmental defense fund is, is i think another one you know the next 50 years may yield some really promising surprises in this area and i think we're going to need it how do we fix it i'm richard davies and i'm jim meggs our producer is miranda schaefer our audio engineer and uh, studio owner is denise barbarita here at mono lisa studios in beautiful uptown manhattan how Do We Fix It is produced by Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Thanks for joining us. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. 
Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.